This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, journalist and poet Minal Hajratwala draws on the realms of creativity and politicized somatics to talk about migration and the body. This event was part of the Haresh and Joan Shah Lecture and Performance Series and was recorded on February 1st, 2018 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. So, where are you from, is the title of this talk. Where are you from? And where are you from? Where are you from? No, like, I mean, originally. (laughs) Is that familiar to anyone? Where are you really from? This is a question that is uh, a pretty normal question, actually, when you first meet someone. Uh, But for me, it's become extremely complex (laughs) and many-layered. And it's a question that uh, comes to me and at me with different kinds of energies uh, in different kinds of spaces and has been pretty much from the beginning of my life and probably even a few generations before that in the life of my family, which has been a migratory family for uh, at least 100 years. So we'll talk about all of that. Um, But before we really get into that, I want to say that this is really a funny situation that we're in right now, right? I'm standing up here and you're sitting there. And yet, we're really the same, but we're really different. It's confusing sometimes. Um, And until a few minutes ago, we were probably kind of much more the same. And then I made a little migration from over there in the audience side of things up here to the microphone side. And as I did that, some things changed in my body. Um, I tried to sort of stand a little taller, maybe. My mother would be happy. My mother, the physical therapist. Um, And I tried to sort of open my heart a little bit more, right? And feel connection with you. Because it's really scary to stand up here alone and also disconnected. So there's a way in which um, we're trying to open to each other maybe because you have also changed by choosing to migrate from your life into this room where some of you may have been before, some of you haven't been before. Um, And the newer spaces the more our bodies have a response to that space sometimes, and our conditioning comes in as part of that response. And I also, when I speak, I try to feel my feet and feel connected with the ground. Um, And I notice sensations in my body. Uh, I feel much warmer right now than I did about 30 seconds ago. Um, that may change. I may get warmer still if I start to feel sort of flushed and embarrassed about my own uh, presumption to be here to speak to you. Or maybe my body temperature will normalize as I relax into this space. Um, And I've been, of course, in your seat also in audiences. And sometimes I have a lot of response in my body to what's going on, like, why is she standing up there just blathering on? I mean, I came here for something. I want to be entertained or I want to be 
moved or, you know, something more than this should be happening. Or sometimes I feel enraptured and excited or, you know, any number of things can be happening in an audience as well. Um, some years after I graduated from my undergraduate life, which was many, many lifetimes ago, um, I was working at a daily newspaper and I found myself in need of something else. And so I started going to a Zen center. And this particular Zen center in Mountain View had a Wednesday night format where there were 40 minutes of silent meditation and then a Dharma talk. And for the first several months that I went, I really appreciated the meditation and felt drawn to it and the talk every single week went completely over my head. I did not understand what they were talking about. I knew that I knew all the words, but somehow <laughs> they weren't connecting at all in my brain. Um, but at some point, there was an instruction in one of the talks about how to listen to a talk. And the instruction was that the talk is exactly the same as the meditation practice. There's no difference. So. Just as in the meditation practice, um, they asked us to be alert to what was happening in our body, in our mind, to watch feelings, sensations, thoughts, judgments arise and be present and dissipate after some time. Um, so the same could happen during a talk and that it wasn't necessary to cling to or absorb in any particular way um, or to reject in any particular way, but just to notice, oh, judgment is arising. Oh, feeling bored. Oh, feeling sleepy. Oh, feeling interested. Um, and this was very helpful to me as a young Zen student. And it's something that I take with me into many, many situations. And, um, and so I want to invite you in this talk, which is really about movement and migration and somatics and change and how we relate to the world um, through this, in this moment where all of us are experiencing and living amidst massive changes all the time. How do we cope with that? Um, how, do we, how do we live through that? Um, is the question at the heart of what I want to talk about and what I'm personally also grappling with in this moment. And, um, and so I want to just invite you to listen the way that you might listen to your own thoughts in a meditation, um, if that feels of interest to you. The other uh, Zen instruction is that if you start to feel sleepy, you should contemplate your own death and that will wake you up. <laughs> um, in, in every Zen center, there's a great bell called a Han that, uh, that is rung as you enter the hall by someone who knows how to ring it. And there's a, uh, a saying right underneath that that says, great is the matter of life and death. Awake, awake, um, which I love. I love that. Uh, that awareness that every moment that we're in uh, is a moment of life and death. One of my writing teachers, uh, a, a brilliant author named Kate Braverman, once gave us in, in a writing workshop the instruction to write as if you are writing to an audience of terminally ill patients, because you are. Isn't that amazing? There's an app, apparently, that has come out recently called We Croak. <laughs> and this app does only one thing. Five times a day, at random moments, it pushes a, a message onto your device that says, don't forget, you will die. <laughs> don't forget. Um, so in this practice of being awake to the collective moment that we're in, uh, I have been, as I think about this talk, a bit like a magpie, sort of collecting shiny bits from everywhere. And, um, and I look forward to sharing those bits with you. Um, 
And one of those bits comes from a world that I love, which is the world of uh, science fiction and speculative fiction. And if you've ever watched any kind of TV or movie, TV show or movie uh, where time travel is a factor, you know that the sort of people get into the time machine and then they are shaken up and then they arrive somewhere and someone says, where are we? And then the other person says, you mean when are we? And, <laughs> and so I want to say that our, our question, our central question, where are you from, is also, of course, the question of when are you from? When are we from? And we're, of course, from right now. Um, and because we live in these miraculous times, we are also not only here on February 1st, 2018 in San Francisco, but we are also on a podcast, which means we could be anywhere at any point in the future. Um, and we have this ability to travel in time. And so to our podcast listeners, wherever and whenever you are, uh, it's beautiful that you're there and then <laughs> and uh, and know that you're also connected with us right here in this room um, even though actually we can barely imagine you actually it's hard to put ourselves in that space sometimes of the future because we don't even know what the future will look like the future is so uncertain especially especially right now, somehow it seems for us as Americans um, in this empire, which has seemed so stable for a few hundred years, um, and yet somehow suddenly we feel shaken. And it's odd. Even those of us who don't particularly endorse or enjoy the project of American imperialism in the world can feel shaken by the prospect that it could be ending. So one of the places that I'm from uh, at the moment is Los Angeles. I happen to live there. Uh, I've lived there for about a year and a half, so I don't really feel like I'm from there. But I did drive up from there on Monday. And if you've ever driven up or down the five, you know there's a long stretch where basically your listening choice is Christian radio. And so I was listening to some Christian radio because I like to open my heart sometimes um, and see how that goes. <laughs> sometimes it doesn't go too well, but sometimes it's interesting. And I was listening to a Bible study call-in talk show, and people were calling in with fascinating questions about um, characters in the Bible, the meanings of things. And then there was a call from Ed in Chicago. And Ed had a really earnest question. He said, you know, when I think about the end times, these times that we're living through now, I feel very afraid. How do you deal with the fear? How do you deal with the fear? And I thought, oh, Ed is afraid. <laughs> and so many of us are afraid right now. Um, even though we might not call it the end times, we might be afraid of the fall of the American empire, or we might be afraid of the end of democracy, the end of some of our freedoms, or a constitutional crisis, or maybe something more personal. Uh, my father died a year and a half ago, and since then I've felt afraid for my mother. Although my mother is perfectly healthy, I feel some fear. And there are many of other things, of course, to be afraid of. Uh, so another thing that I want to talk about is migration and fear and how in this moment, in this global moment, where we ourselves are moving so fast 
and the world is moving very fast around us, what can we learn from migrants about fear, about their fear, and how to handle it? Um, I want also to read, maybe before we, we switch gears, before I go into a little bit of reading, um, I'd like to share something about um, another aspect of my relationship with this moment and our relationship with this moment because it's really remarkable, right? This particular moment in history that we have, the 50 or 60 of us together and the infinite number of potential podcast listeners um, is unique. It will actually never again happen in the history of human experience, and it's never happened before. And so let's just look around and see who's next to us. Who's in the room? How remarkable. It's a beautiful audience, actually. Um, and it's an audience that is and a community, a temporary community, that is really unlike many communities in the history of human experience. The diversity in this room and also in this city, in this region of the world, is pretty remarkable. Um, San Francisco and the San Francisco census area is actually the place that takes in the most immigrants every year in the United States. Um, if this room is a microcosm of the city, then most of us are not from San Francisco or even California. We've come here from another state, from another country. Raise your hand if you're from another planet. <laughs> And so, um, so that's amazing because even at, in, say, 1776, most Americans, which at the time meant white Americans, lived, worked, married, had children, died within 30 miles of their place of birth. People were not mobile the way that we are. So how far, how amazing each of us has traveled to be here. And even if, like me, you were born in San Francisco, what travels have you had in between? When someone asks me where I'm from, I have a lot of answers. In fact, I wrote a 400-page book about <laughs> where I'm from. So now I can just send them to the link. Um, but after being born in San Francisco, my family moved to New Zealand, and we lived there for seven years. Then we moved to Florida, and then to Iowa, and then to Michigan, and then I came out to the Bay Area, and then I was here for quite a while. Then I moved to India for seven years, and then I moved to Los Angeles, and in between, I lived for brief periods in central Pennsylvania and New York City. So we've come together from many, many remarkable places. And I don't think I'm unique in the kind of moving that I'm doing, looking around at the folks that I happen to know. Uh, I know that most of you have also made big, big journeys in your lives. and. Um, and also that someone has worked very hard to create this diversity that exists here in this room, right? Because even within this city, there are places that are exclusive and homogenous. Even within this diverse country, there are men's clubs where white men of wealth get together <laughs> to uh, grope waitresses, for example, and engage in other pastimes of interest to themselves. Um, so I want to say also that I feel very grateful 
to the conditions and the people who make these kinds of spaces possible. Um, of course, to CIIS and to Harish and Joan Shah for creating this event, um, but also to all of the students and faculty of color over many years who have uh, helped this institution as any institution in America to diversify itself. Um, and their white allies who have softened their relationship with white supremacy enough to open the doors, to allow all of us to walk in. And one of the things that feels to me the most useful in coping with migration is a practice that I learned from Thich Nhat Hanh, who uh, was a is a Vietnamese Buddhist master and many years ago held a retreat for people of color at his, um, at his village in Southern California that I was fortunate enough to attend. Um, and Thich Nhat Hanh's story is very moving to me because sometimes I feel that, oh, it's too hard to be peaceful. It's too hard to be generous to the enemy, right? It's, they're so wrong and we are so right. How can we reach across? How can we? And Thich Nhat Hanh and his brotherhood of monks were in Vietnam in the middle of a bitter, bitter war that we in America caused in large part. Um, and they chose not only to stay in their country, but also to refuse to take sides and to take care of those who were suffering. And in the middle of that difficult, difficult work, they created a movement that Thich Nhat Hanh called Engaged Buddhism, which is a term we use very widely in the West now, and also a series of practices to help the monks and nuns under his care cope with these extraordinary circumstances both within Vietnam and also in exile once they were not allowed to return to Vietnam. And one of the practices that he taught us was a practice of bowing to our ancestors. And there were three types of bows that he taught us. So although we are not physically gonna bow together right now, I do welcome you to consider making a mental bow if you would like. First to our teachers. Starting with our immediate teachers, the people that we have had the good fortune to be in their presence, and then their teachers, and their teachers, all the way back as far as we can imagine. In his case, all the way back to the Buddha. And here in this place, a place of teaching and of learning, we also have a lineage of teachers and their teachers and their teachers, people who devoted their lives to the transmission of knowledge over many generations, to the transmission of wisdom that they hoped would help us here today. So many ancestors whose names we didn't know and who don't know our names, and yet this is what they gave us. And then to our ancestors of the land, the Muwekma Ohlone peoples from whom this land was taken, the Spanish and later the American colonizers who conquered it, who took it by force. They're also in this place our ancestors. And all the animals and the animal spirits who have walked over this land, we walk in their footsteps and we stand on their bones. So those are our ancestors who we can acknowledge and be awake to. And then we have our own ancestors in our families, both our families of blood and our families of choice. Whatever their failings, whatever their toxicities, at some point, our own parents were also children. 
and their parents were children, and their parents were also children, and like all children, they wished to be happy. And that basic innocence, that basic goodness, is also where we are from. It's where we are from. And being from there, we can feel all of that beautiful energy at our backs, allowing us to be here with such goodwill and such good hearts, such care for each other um, in this space. Where are you from? This question is one that um, makes me interrogate the nature of questions themselves. What is a question, actually? A question is an attempt to bridge a gap in understanding. So sometimes I experience it as a physical space, right? Like the gap between two people sitting in the audience, two people riding the bus. There's a physical gap. But if one of them were to ask a question of the other, maybe even what time is it? Then there's a kind of bridge created. And if it's a question that comes with good energy, it creates a certain kind of bridge. And if it's another kind of question, like, hey, baby, what you doing tonight? Then it creates another kind of bridge, a really scary, maybe, kind of bridge, right? So there are different kinds of things that happen with questions. And when we try to respond to a question, we are trying to also enter that gap, or maybe run from that gap. So where are you from? Do I want to migrate toward the person asking the question? Or do I not want to migrate toward them? Do I want to run the other way? Really depends on how, how the question is asked. I lived um, for many years in San Francisco when it was still um, more of a gay city than a tech city. <laughs> and um, still pretty gay. Uh, and at that time, there were bathhouses. And one of the bathhouses was a women's bathhouse right up here on Valencia Street. I used to go there a lot. And one time I was there, and you know, everyone's sort of just in their towels, soaking in the hot tub, feeling sort of relaxed and happy. And a woman who happened to be white came up to me and said, where are you from? And I said, oh, here, San Francisco. She said, oh. And we waited. <laughs> and then that was sort of the end of that question. She didn't, she didn't take it anywhere. Um, she hadn't asked my name. She, she didn't volunteer where she was from. Uh, and then she went on to say something even more mysterious, which was, well, I just wanted to tell you, you're so beautiful, like a mammal. <laughs> like a mammal. It's hard to know what was in her mind. Um, and I don't, I don't want to, you know, attribute anything to that because I also didn't ask what that meant. Um, and I didn't have a response. That was 2005 and I still don't have a response. <laughs> still don't quite know what to make of that. Um, but some of the questions that come out of the question of where are you from, they, it was part of the same energy, right? Like the where are you from and the mammal statement both came from the same attempt to create a bridge toward me. And I did not step onto that bridge. And one of the interesting things about 
this question, which really has become a kind of koan to me, a Zen riddle, uh, an object of meditation. What, what could someone see in someone else's body that makes them think of an animal? How awkward can attraction possibly be? How can we utterly embarrass ourselves when trying to just express ourselves? Is it something to do with my body hair? Is it something to do with my adipose tissue? Is it something to do with my skin color? Is it something energetic like astrology? What makes us mammals? What makes one member of the same species more of a mammal than another member of the same species? It's so interesting, so mysterious. And these moments, this question rebounds in my consciousness, I know, because of where I do come from. Because I grew up a tender little brown girl just trying her best to fit in in a very white suburb of the great white flight city of Detroit. I feel wounded. I felt wounded then by the repetitive whip of where are you from, where are you from, where are you from, which carried inside it a series of statements, including you're not from here, not from here, not from here. And also, you don't belong here, don't belong here, don't belong here. And also, go away, go away, go away. Which is what white suburban Michigan was saying to Asian immigrants in the 1980s when I lived there and when Vincent Chin was murdered there for being Asian-American, Chinese-American, in fact, in an era when the white auto workers who attacked and killed him thought he was Japanese and blamed the Japanese for taking away their jobs. And because of my deep study of the politics and history of American immigration and American xenophobia, my feathers do ruffle like a bird against the interrogation of where are you from. Because when I, in my red American firebird, crossed the border from Canada to Michigan in the US of A, I'm interrogated even though my passport the blue American passport that I've had since the age of six months old, in a series of them, is sitting on the driver, on the passenger seat, and the Homeland Security agent can see it and doesn't ask for it and asks me, where are you from? Where were you born? Which hospital were you born in? Who was the first president of the United States of America? Who was the 16th president? At which point I said, look, I went to public school. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the other day a Native American was attacked by a white American demanding to know where she came from, demanding that she go back there. And so I want with all my heart to turn away from this question. And yet, because I'm a poet, I also find that I have to turn inward and toward it and break it apart. And as I do that, I find that there are so many other questions that I'm really interested in, so many poetries that happen inside our bodies when we contemplate the movement of our bodies between borders. Who were you 
before you bloomed? Who carried your seed in their beak? From which cloud did you drink along the way? What is the origin story of your people? Which was harder, to put down roots or to be cut off from them? So today is the 32nd day of 2018. We've had today our 12th school shooting. Last week we watched as 158 young women stood up and testified about a predator who had been allowed to prey on all of them and more. And you know, in a way, people of, women of my generation, I'm 47, podcast listeners, I'll be older by the time you hear this. <laughs> we always knew that predators were running the show. We always knew that there were reasons that we didn't lean in, that there were places we couldn't go and we called it other things. We called it the glass ceiling. We called it women dropping out of the workforce. We called it not enough women and minorities in the pipeline. But we knew. And now, in this remarkable moment, everyone knows. And it feels as if the times have never been more urgent for our work, for our stories, whether we're telling our stories as writers or as tweeters or just to each other. And Ed from Chicago is correct. It is end times for certain things that need to end. Last night I saw Louise Gluck read at Stanford, and um, again, as I said, I've been a magpie collecting things for you. So there's a bit of a poem that she read that I want to share with you that really struck me. Um, Louise Gluck is 74 years old. She's won almost every honor there is in American poetry. But she grew up a Hungarian Jew in New York City. Her father helped invent the X-Acto knife and worked in the factory that made them. She never graduated from college. And many of her poems now at 74 are about the deterioration of the body and the mind, about looking directly at death. And she said, you will not be spared, nor will what you love be spared. And then a few lines after this bleak message, she said, how privileged you are to still be clinging passionately to what you love, still believing in something. How privileged you are to still be clinging passionately to what you love. So what do we do with this exquisite privilege? There's privilege, the kind she's talking about, the human privilege, just to be born into this lifetime is, the Buddhists say, the greatest gift, something we shouldn't squander, shouldn't take for granted. Awake, awake. And then there's also privilege in the way that we talk about it in spaces like this, where we understand that privilege is also related to our gender, our race, our class, our bodies. One of the people that I have learned so much from, one of the teachers I've learned so much from about this is a writer, poet, performer, activist named Leah Lakshmi Pyapsna Samarinsa. And 
she says in an essay that is actually just a little intro to a resource guide about how to be fragrance-free in order to um, make spaces accessible to people with chemical sensitivities. She says, when I think about access, I think about love. I think that Crip solidarity and solidarity between Crips and not yet Crips is a powerful act of love, of I got your back. Embedded in this is a giant paradigm shift. Our Crip bodies aren't seen as liabilities, something that limits us and brings pity, or as something to nobly transcend because I'm just like you. Our Crip bodies are gifts, brilliant, fierce, skilled, valuable, assets that teach us things that are relevant and vital to ourselves, our communities, our movements, the whole goddamn planet. And she says, if I'm having a pain day and need you to use accessible language because I'm having a hard time processing language, and you do, that's love, and that's solidarity. If I'm not a wheelchair user, and I make sure I work with the workshop to ensure that the pathways through the workshop chairs are at least three feet wide. That is love and solidarity. This is how we build past and away from bitterness and disappointment at movements that have not cared about or valued us. When I think about access, I think about love, says Leah Lakshmi. And I, that makes me think that every privilege that we have, we can turn into love. We don't have to get stuck in guilt or shame about our privilege. We don't have to get stuck in denying that we have our privilege or pretending that we don't have privilege. When I think about the privileges that we have just to be here right now in this room in San Francisco, the privilege to be mobile enough to get our physical bodies here, free enough with enough disposable time to spend here, not currently incarcerated. So much privilege. And some of us even have gender or skin color or enabled bodied or economic class or citizenship privilege. Some of us don't. Some of us do, some of us don't. This is a gap. So what kind of questions can we ask? Maybe where are you from is one type of bridge. And maybe there's more than that. To travel these huge gaps, these gaps that feel so immense sometimes, but if there's anything that I know as a migrant myself, as the daughter of migrants, as the granddaughter, as the great-granddaughter of migrants, it is that sometimes we are required to travel across these gaps. So we would like to share a, a little story um, about my great-grandfather. My great-grandfather was named Motiram Narsi and he migrated from Western India to the Fiji Islands in 1909. He was a tailor. He went on to start a little tailoring shop, and um, his shop over the next three generations became the biggest department store in the South Pacific, um, and then there was family squabbling and it shut down. In the vast ocean of the Indian diaspora, the migration of my family to Fiji constitutes only a tiny trickle. Ours is but one small undercurrent in an ocean, a diaspora that was and is being still built, one journey, one family, one economic niche at a time. So this passage takes place uh, about nine years after he arrived in Fiji. Could Motiram read the newspapers? Never mind. He could hear. Maybe someone read to him or he heard the radio news 
or he talked with other men in the places where men talked, at the market, in the lodges, near the seaport watching the ships, in the back rooms behind the shop where they slept and, breaking all the prohibition laws, drank. The things that circled the globe began to touch him. A prospering businessman, he started to wear shoes every day and European suits. He grew a fine mustache and combed it. It balanced his thick, serious eyebrows, which I also have. He followed the news. There were ships coming in, prices of goods, war. The world had become interconnected, and many things were circumnavigating it. Ideas, fashions, a new epidemic. In the Fiji Times and Herald, advice for staving off the disease was plentiful. A local chemist recommended eucalyptus oil sprinkled around the dwelling rooms and antiseptic lozenges under the tongue. The New Zealand Board of Health prescribed gargling with baking soda. Quarantines held up ships for weeks as panic swept the world and in 1918, a ship named the Talune docked in Western Samoa. The officers and crew from New Zealand knew that some of their passengers were ill with symptoms that resembled the deadly disease known as influenza or Spanish influenza. And yet they told the harbor master there were only sniffles, nothing serious. People disembarked people embarked. The Talune carried on to nearby Tonga and to Fiji. Within two weeks, 7,500 Samoans, 22% of the island's population, were dead. It was the world's worst single case of the epidemic. In Fiji, the disaster lasted through the end of the year when the colony's chief medical officer reported a total mortality of 8,000. Around the world, the epidemic would claim millions of lives. Estimates range even now from 20 to 100 million. Motiram Narsi, at perhaps 35 years old, was one of its casualties. Now in bed with the flu, armed with Tylenol and cough drops, I wake in a sweat, the covers tossed about me like seas. Imagine dying this way, I tell myself. Who knows how many days and nights feverish chills racked my great-grandfather's body, what dreams and delusions filled his last hours. Growing weaker, confined to bed, his body would have been less and less able to fight the quick-moving virus replicating itself in every cell. Was he alone in a cot strung behind the shop or in one of the makeshift quarantine clinics set up around town? Did his kinsmen tend him or did they stay away from fear? Whose name did he call out in delirium? Some of the questions that arise in looking deeply at where we are from are difficult, are painful, and I think again of Louise Gluck's lines, you will not be spared. No one you love will be spared. And so then I think about privilege, and really, what are we doing with our privilege? It's, it is a matter, great, of life and death, isn't it? It's a matter of this moment where we have so many opportunities to act, so many needs, so many people who require shelter or even just soothing, right? Even Ed in Chicago, who needs soothing for his fear. There's a little bit of Ed in us. We're afraid. These things are scary. And when I think about how to turn privilege into love, I think maybe that's one of the most crucial questions. 
for people like me and maybe you who have a little bit of privilege in this world? How can we turn our privilege into love? How can we stop perpetuating the fear? How can we stop it from cascading within ourselves? And so I want to share with you an invitation. Um, as some of you know, I have been working with unicorns for some time. And uh, I think you all have a right like a unicorn sticker for your enjoyment. Um, and so this is a poem that I'd like to share that, uh, that comes to you from my communiques with the unicorns. It's called Unicorns for Dummies. Unicorns for Dummies. But no one is stupid in unicorn country. Wouldn't that be nice to migrate to a place where no one is stupid? No one is stupid in unicorn country. Each genius shimmies forth. The girl who sorts candies by color only at Easter, murmuring, hmm. The boy who still believes in communism. All your questions will be answered, rendering this text superfluous. Still, I write because we have some miles to go before we reach the radiant border, and I don't want you to lose heart. You will need heart to enter the high green land, no matter how bravely you've crossed the wastes. Mere survival is not enough, although it's hard enough to scratch your way from shrub to scrub, panting. Despite your parched lips, Despite the thorns and termite wounds in your thighs, let's not be grim. For you have to believe in the beast, its fabled horn, and most of all in the tender bead that you carry, bead of cork and rice, of plasma swelling forth, of mammal sweat, in which the world is refracted and the cliffs fall away and everyone you were gives way to who you will be. So thank you so much for your attention, where we are from, where we're going. Let's see. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.